Hi Cult Hackers, welcome to the podcast. I'm Stephen Mather, organisational psychologist and one of the hosts of the show. Today is the final of four bonus episodes taken from our Cults on Film miniseries, where I present a cult reading of a movie. Other movies featured in this series are Star Trek First Contact, Apostasy and Star Wars. You can find these episodes in the Cult Hackers main podcast feed. This episode explores the 2020 adaptation of The Invisible Man, originally imagined by H.G. Wells back in 1897. A defining characteristic of cults is their use of coercive control towards their members, a theme explored adeptly by this movie through the manipulative behaviour of the titular character. Most reviews of the Invisible Man stories point to the classic H.G. Wells novel, first published in 1897, as the beginning of the story. But a fascination with invisible beings and the stories of their activities is ancient. Examples can be found in Greek, Norse and Roman myths. So I'm going to talk about why I think we're so interested in this particular superpower. Um, and also why I think so much has been written about it. But today I'm focusing really on the latest big movie based on this idea, the 2020 version of The Invisible Man, directed by Lee Warnell, starring Elizabeth Moss, Aldous Hodge, Oliver Jackson-Cohen and Harriet Dyer. So on the face of it, this movie might not seem an obvious choice for a podcast featuring movies on cults, But when we start to think about coercive control, I think it becomes obvious that this film has something important to say on the subject. Okay, let's get to the film. The opening scene of the movie shows us an apparently sleeping Cecilia, played by Elizabeth Moss, in the arms of her partner. Although asleep, he cradles her tummy. Is she pregnant, we wonder? Anyway, it certainly seems like a scene of peaceful domesticity. But Celia, or C, as she's called throughout the movie, is not asleep. She opens her eyes, looks at the clock. It's the early hours. She gently moves his arm from around her waist and quietly slips out of bed. It's obvious now that this is some sort of escape. And she seems to have a plan. It looks like she drugged him with diazepam to keep him asleep. And it looks like she's executed the plan perfectly until the dog, although friendly, gets in the way and sets off the alarm by accident. So it's a tense scene now as she clambers over the wall, runs down the side of the cliff to a waiting car, has what I think is an annoying, unnecessary conversation with who we find out is her sister, during which time the man's awake, has caught up with her, and uh, demands that she get out of the car and come back. He smashes the glass on the side window of the car before her sister finally gets the message and speeds off. It's a great start to a movie. gives us a lot of information without any dialogue. Uh, We know that she's in a relationship. She wants out of that relationship. He's got a violent temper. She feels frightened, and for apparently good reason. 
It also appears that the man is wealthy. The house is stunning, sitting atop a dramatic cliff face with state-of-the-art security. He also has tech that we don't really understand yet, as well as typical rich boys' toys, you know, the sports cars, the bikes, that sort of stuff. The film cuts to two weeks later, where she's staying with a male friend of her sister's, James, played by Aldis Hodge, and his daughter, Sydney, played by Storm Reed. C is obviously experiencing trauma. She's terrified of the man she's just left. So terrified that she's afraid to go out, even as far as the mailbox to collect the mail. He's not out there, reassures James. She manages to make what feels like an epic journey to the bottom of the drive, but as she starts to open the mailbox, she's startled by a hoodie-clad runner who spooks her as he runs past and dashes back into the house without fetching the mail. But she's encouraged by James to see her actually going down to the mailbox as a small but significant victory. We also see C apparently paranoid as she learns how to render her webcam blind. She's obviously suspicious that the man might use it to spy on her. And then C is furious with her sister Emily as she turns up to the house to give her some news. She'd had a plan which included Emily staying away. She's terrified that he would follow her and her hiding place would be revealed. She beseeches her sister to follow her plan and just not be in control for once. I think this is a really interesting little conversation and I'm going to come back to it later. But anyway, Emily justifies her going outside of the plan because she's got some very significant news. He's dead, she says. I really like the way Moss plays the part now as she tries to process the information. Emily passes her the news item on a mobile device and for the first time, 15 minutes into the film, we actually know his name. He's Adrian Griffin, a name that we'll talk about again. And sure enough, the news item confirms it. He's dead in what is reported to be a suicide. If you're quick, you'll also notice that he was a tech entrepreneur and founder of an optics company. Of course, that's significant. As she sits gingerly on the sofa, her sister realises the extent of the trauma. Hey, what did he do to you? She wants to talk, but C is still shut down. So I think the heart of the film comes next, as C sits at the table with Emily and James and finally starts to open up about her life with Adrian. He was in complete control of everything, including me, she says. He controlled how I looked, and what I wore, and what I ate. And then he was controlling when I left the house, what I said, and eventually what I thought. And if he didn't like what he assumed I was thinking, he would... She pauses, obviously finding it difficult. James asks what he did what? He would hit you? Amongst other things, says C. We also learn during this conversation that Adrian wanted to have a baby, and C saw this as the point from which there would be no return, and this seems to be the catalyst for her leaving. 
At this point, I want to talk a little bit about the artistic choices for the film because they're they're somewhat unusual. Uh, for a start, we don't get to see how the relationship started or the early days of their relationship. In fact, we see very little of Adrian at all throughout the movie. We only see them interacting sort of properly at the end of the film, the very final scene. So we miss the early phase of their relationship where we can only assume that Adrian seduced and then somehow trapped C. In February of 2022, I spoke to a peer researcher, activist and former victim of coercive control in a domestic setting, Min Grob, about how these relationships start. She talked about a sort of playbook of the coercive controller. So I'm going to talk a little bit about those. First, there's love bombing. The person showers the potential victim with love and attention, perhaps buying them lots of expensive gifts, telling them how wonderful they are, how much they need them and love them. The relationship is likely to be incredibly intense. So we can only assume that Adrian followed this playbook. There is a hint in a one-way conversation when C speaks to what appears to be an empty room where she asks, Why me? You could have had anyone. I'm just a girl from the suburbs. To me, this hints at the likelihood that she would have been whisked off her feet by this wealthy man who could buy her anything and a promise of a fabulous life. And she's also hinting here at a sense of inferiority. You know, I'm just a girl from the suburbs. This also could have been played on by the calculating Adrian. Again, not shown in the film, my guest explained that what then often happens is that early on, during the intense phase of the relationship, and seemingly out of the blue, the controlling person will behave badly or shockingly. Maybe they'll lose their temper, make a scene with their friends, or maybe even physically attack them in some way. My guest described this as a sort of test to see how much they can get away with. It can also embed a pattern of behaviour that will then continue for the rest of the relationship, with periods of incredible intensity interspersed with abuse. It appears that C has been through these phases and has been well and truly controlled by Adrian. So the artistic choices of the film not to directly show even through flashback, the development of this toxic relationship is interesting. It could be seen as a bit of a mistake if the purpose of the movie is to tell a story of coercive control. And I do feel that to some degree, but I guess what it does do is put the strength and the growth of C at the centre of the picture. In fact, as I said, we see very little of Adrian at all, who in a way, is a minor character in terms of screen time. And perhaps that's the point. Controlling abusers often demonstrate narcissistic tendencies, and the choice to focus on C would seem designed to avoid this. It's not all about him. So we now meet Adrian's brother, who's a lawyer and is acting on behalf of his brother's estate. He informs C that his brother has left her several millions of dollars but with the stipulation that she doesn't get into any criminal trouble this is important it will be a lever of control for later in the movie it's only after this meeting during a moment of happiness as c 
gives James's daughter Sydney a, a cash gift and also ongoing support that will enable her to go to the school of her dreams that we get the first hint that Adrian is not in fact dead but has faked his death and has somehow become invisible and that he's at the house watching what's happening. I really like the way it's done in the film. It's just done in a very understated way through the use of a long camera lens as we watch the scene from an open door in another room. This just gives us the sense that actually there is somebody watching. So by now it should be obvious that this version of The Invisible Man is very different to previous incarnations of the story. So for a moment I want to talk about this difference, why it makes this movie interesting, and also how different treatments of the story tell us something about the culture of the time when it's made. So I've mentioned that ancient stories of invisibility are very common and they're normally linked to the supernatural and fears about unseen enemies, demons attacking them and harming families and children. By the time H.G. Wells writes his book, culture was enthralled but slightly unsettled by the power of science and technology. So invisibility is no longer something about supernatural events, it's about science and technology. For the 1933 movie directed by James Whale and starring Claude Rains, it's a special chemical that can turn flesh invisible, but that also has a detrimental effect on the mental health of the person exposed to it. In the 1933 version, we observe the paranoid invisible man, Dr. Jack Griffin. Note the surname, one that would be used in the 2020 version as a nod to the original story. His head and face is strangely bandaged. He's wearing white gloves and dark glasses. He's an odd-looking character. Obviously, everybody's looking at him. He is trying to find a place to work. Um, he's rude and he's aggressive in his interactions with his host where he finds a room. He becomes more and more unhinged as he uses his invisibility to frighten, shock, humiliate, hurt and then kill people to further his ends. In this version it's the invisibility itself that sends him into a mad spiral of murder and mayhem. He believes that invisibility will give him the power to mould the world to his will. Although the story suggests that it's the chemical side effects that are to blame or his recent bad behaviour, there is a reading that this is a case of power corrupting. And invisibility would confer upon the individual a power that would be hard to keep under control. To be able to secretly listen to everyone's private conversations, to observe people's private lives, to be able to hurt or even take life so easily provides godlike powers that could easily be abused. So ironically, the Invisible Man can be seen in some ways as a sort of lens through which we can observe the issues of the day. But questions about power and control are very much at the forefront of the story, and society at the time determines how this power will be explored, whether it's the power of the individual, the power of the man, the power of science, technology, or even governments. 
increased awareness of methods of coercive control and how abusive individuals and organisations use these methods to control and manipulate others is important and, of course, one of the reasons for my own work in this space. In some respects, the 2020 version of The Invisible Man owes as much to a different type of movie altogether. Gaslight, the story of a man who convinces his wife that she's going mad so as to get at her wealth, demonstrates a set of tactics to which it gives its name to the well-known behaviour of gaslighting. In the 2020 version of The Invisible Man, Adrian, as an invisible man, gradually interferes in C's life. He makes her think that she's going mad. It's actually a form of gaslighting. He makes her think that she's caused a stove fire. He subtly makes her doubt herself. He removes her portfolio of work from her case so that when she goes to an interview and tries to show off her work, it's empty. These things undermine her confidence in herself and make her feel useless and she starts to doubt her sanity. The film is now demonstrating the experience of gaslighting and coercive control. We've heard C explain what he did to her and now we're seeing it but with this added element of invisibility he's got even more power. Partners who are coercively controlling cannot abide the focus of their obsession having any outside interests. A career, friends, family, happiness that does not involve them. All these things are demonstrated in the movie. One of the classic problems of someone experiencing coercive control is that it's often hard to convince others the extent to which there's a problem. This applies whether we're talking about cults or high control groups or coercive relationships. C starts to believe that Adrian is still alive, but her friend James understandably sees this as a psychological problem. He doesn't really believe her, of course. Adrian will haunt you if you let him. Don't let him, he says. We'd normally think that's actually quite good advice. And James is a really sympathetic character. He can be seen in many ways as the healthy role model for men in general, a sort of anti-Adrian, the opposite of Adrian. But here in this scene, he's playing the part of the often well-meaning friend who doesn't really understand the situation and may even downplay it. Okay, there's now a nice little nod to early incarnations of the Invisible Man. When C is in hospital following a fainting, we see a man completely bandaged, you know, classic Invisible Man style. He just happens to be in the hospital there on a trolley. C looks at him without saying a word. And that's it. We just move on. But I really like that little touch. Right, back to the plot of the film. So the blood work comes back to show that C has got high levels of diazepam in her system, the very drug she used on Adrian to escape. This is again typical of a narcissist controlling person. Not only does this help to undermine her and make her look like she's not looking after herself and abusing herself, but it also strikes back at her for doing something to him, making him feel vulnerable. But C is now convinced that Adrian is still alive. In a meeting with Adrian's brother, Tom, she confronts him and tells him to send the message to Adrian to stop what he's doing. She now recounts a moment when she was sitting and thinking of leaving, 
planning the whole thing in her head when she noticed Adrian staring at her, studying her, and without her saying anything, he said she could never leave him, that wherever she went, he would find her, and he would walk right up to her, and she wouldn't be able to see him, but that he would leave her a sign, so she would know that he was there. The audacity of this statement fits the grandiose nature of a narcissist. I can do anything I want. I have the power. You can't stop me. And I can do it in full view and still get away with it. She makes the link to his work with optics and the ability to become invisible. This is useful for us as viewers, but I think we've guessed that already. Even the normally loyal James is struggling to stay supportive as C appears delusional. Tom is an interesting character. We don't really see very much of him, but he. there, there are times when you feel a little bit sorry for him and then others when you realise that he's also bought into, I guess, the cult of Adrian, really. But he said, um, my brother controlled me long before he met you, Cecilia. I hated him. And Tom identifies Adrian's genius, not as his work, but how he could find a person's weakness and exploit it. Again, this is something typical of a high-functioning, controlling narcissist, and something Min Grob, our former guest, an expert on coercive control, spoke to me about. This predatory tendency to identify a way to exploit any sensitivity is common among coercive controllers. Grob made the point, you know, maybe you're ashamed about some aspects of your appearance or you're conscious of a lack of formal education or maybe you grew up quite poor without material possessions. The controller seeks to identify whatever they see as a weakness and exploit it to their own ends. The aim of the coercive controller is to influence and intimidate the subject of the abuse to such a degree that even when they're not around, they're still in control. The concept of the panopticon is relevant here. The panopticon is a type of system of control originally theorised as a way to control prisoners with minimum number of guards. If you think about a single tower in the centre of a complex, overlooking the prison buildings all around it, it means that the inmates can only assume that they are being watched all of the time, even though they can't actually see the observer. Psychologically, this belief that they're being watched all of the time effectively puts the jailer inside the mind. They moderate their own behaviour even when no one is looking, because they assume that they're being watched. This panopticon effect is now applied to many other systems of control where the control happens inside the mind of the individual. This is a typical cult tactic and a tactic of coercive controllers. In fact, Tom alludes to this by saying that the only thing more brilliant than inventing invisibility would be not inventing it, but making you believe he did. We obviously know that he's wrong about this but he makes a good point a further typical tactic of the controlling person or organization is to isolate the target 
this is one of the most obvious areas of commonality between coercive relationships and cults. In the movie, C is angrily told by her sister about a very nasty email that C has apparently sent. Of course, it's not C, but it's Adrian who's accessed her email and sent the message. Of course, her sister doesn't really believe that and she thinks she said some horrible things to her. This is all a way to try and isolate C from her friends and family. Cults isolate their members by creating an us and them mentality. You know, the world is a dangerous, godless, wicked, evil, corrupt place. Only by sticking close to the group can you stay protected from the bad world outside. There may also be claims to loyalty. Don't mix with those outsiders. Stay loyal to your real family in here. And coercive relationships may also use this appeal to loyalty. But also, they might use emotional blackmail. You know, who do you love? Why do you want to be with this person? Why don't you want to be with me? In this case, Adrian is driving a wedge between C and her sister. Okay, I just want to briefly go back to something I said earlier on around this statement that C said to Emily about control. There is this suggestion that C's sister Emily might be seen by C to be somewhat controlling. I've mentioned this already when C is angry that Emily doesn't seem to be sticking to the plan that C's worked out. We don't know if this controlling behaviour of Emily is true or to what degree, but if it is true, it might suggest a pattern of behaviour within close relationships for C. Maybe she's moved from a familial controlling relationship into an intimate one. There's obviously nothing to suggest anything like the same levels of control from, from Emily that Adrian's employing. And it's important to remember that control comes on a spectrum. But C may have seen Adrian as a way out of a smothering family relationship. Okay, more isolation for C. As Adrian, whilst invisible, goes into the house and makes it appear that C has hit young Sydney, James's daughter. Understandably, James is angry with C and concerned for the safety of his daughter. But the worst is yet to come. And I'm going to give you a second warning about spoilers. The most shocking and upsetting scene comes next. When the Invisible Man does the ultimate to isolate C from the person she loves most. So obviously C's had this bit of a difficult conversation with her sister. She thinks she sent this email. So she sets up a meeting with Emily at a restaurant to try and explain and convince her about what's happening. The Invisible Man has obviously followed her. And in the middle of the meal, Emily stops talking, trying to make sense of what she's seeing as a knife appears to float in mid-air. Within the blink of an eye, the knife cuts Emily's throat and then nestles in C's hand, looking to everyone as though she's just killed her sister. It's an awful, shocking scene. C, of course, is now at rock bottom. Adrian appears to have won, to have destroyed her. She's lost everything. And on top of this, she's grieving her sister. At this time, she also finds out she's pregnant. Tom, as the legal representative for Adrian's estate, now informs her that the clause, removing her as a beneficiary, has been activated because she's committed a criminal offence. But 
he now reveals himself to be a co-conspirator with Adrian. He has an offer to make. Go back to Adrian. Have the baby and all the bad stuff goes away. We also find out that Adrian knew that C was taking contraceptives secretly. And actually he replaced them with something else. So he is responsible for this pregnancy. So again, there is a control element here. Adrian is also removing C's ability to make decisions about whether she is going to be pregnant or not. This element of control is reinforced by Tom when he says that Adrian needs C because she doesn't need him and that no one has ever left him before. This visceral need for control is evident here. So although Adrian talks about love, it's hard to see this as genuine love. It's more a drive to have the power to control everything that touches him. And that encompasses C as well. How dare she leave me, he thinks. So it's at this point that C decides to take control. She recognises that paradoxically, his fixation with her and now her unborn child does give her some power over him. So in the secure unit, she, assuming that he's there in the room, appears to be about to take her own life with a sharp object. But actually, she's trying to draw him in. And as he tries to stop her, she then stabs him with it. She's now forced him to reveal himself. And guards now see the unbelievable reality in front of them as his suit that's making him invisible is malfunctioning it's flicking on and off so there's now bedlam there's mayhem as people are trying to stop him he's attacking them Um, she's also trying to escape from adrian and the unit she basically does escape from the unit but adrian his invisibility suit now malfunctioning tells her that he won't hurt her but he will hurt the people she loves. He leaves her in no doubt that he's referring to Sydney. Now the chase is on for her to protect Sydney and James. So she succeeds in saving them. She shoots the invisible man, takes off the mask of the invisible man, but it's not Adrian in the suit. It's his brother, Tom. So this appears to be a big twist in the film. It appears that it was Tom all along. And Adrian is found locked in a cupboard in his home. Apparently in a bad way, he's the victim. This again is part of the coercive controller's playbook. Playing the victim is a way to garner sympathy and deflect from their own bad behaviour. They may actually genuinely feel sorry for themselves because things haven't worked out as they planned. So they just see the world as unjust. It seems that Adrian's fooled everyone. She knows that it's been Adrian all along and that essentially he sacrificed his brother. The final scene is now set. C gets dressed up, goes to Adrian's house, apparently to come back to him and start again with their relationship. I think it's interesting. Again, we come back to these artistic choices well over an hour and a half into the picture. And this is the first time Elizabeth Moss playing C, and Oliver Jackson Cohen, playing Adrian, actually get to act opposite each other. Now we get to see the dynamics of this relationship, of this coercive 
controlling relationship. Adrian is charming and attentive. You look amazing, he compliments her. He's laid on every type of food he could think of to make her happy. He expresses apparent vulnerability, saying how nervous he is, and appears tongue-tied. So eager is he to impress her. His hand is shaking. He tells her that she's the only person that can make him feel this way, in an attempt to make her feel special. But again, this reveals a certain narcissism. Why should this impress her unless he knows he's something special? He now apologises. Again, this is typical abuser behaviour. He acknowledges that he treated her badly and that he's sorry. He's learned his lesson. He won't do it again. The regular cry of the abuser. She tells him that she will accept him being a part of her child's life if he is honest and admits to what he did, that it was him all along, not Tom. She needs the truth. Of course, she's wearing a wire with James outside, ready to hear the confession. But he won't do it. He maintains the lie. No, it was Tom, wasn't me. She gives him every chance to tell the truth. But here's where she's way ahead of us as the audience. She knows that he won't. She also knows the location of the security cameras. He still denies it. He still denies that it was him and claims it was his brother that controlled him. She cries. And his comfort is to tell her that I know you feel that you're going insane sometimes. This is a suggestion that he's trying to plant into her head. But I'm the only one who can help you. Typical coercive control. Break them first and be there to rebuild them in the way that they want them. Weak and grateful. Remember, I know you better than anyone else in the world. Another power move. Me. I know you better. I've got control. C appears to have been broken and asked to be excused and go to the bathroom to freshen up. The twist here is that she's anticipated this reaction. She knows where the invisibility suits are kept. And what the security camera sees is an apparent suicide as Adrian picks up a knife and slices his own throat. This is a mirror of the horrific scene in the restaurant with her sister. C comes back from the bathroom and acts horrified in front of the camera, makes the 911 call, crying, upset, shocked. She then steps back from the view of the camera and watches with a wry smile as he dies on the carpet. James runs into the scene. He's now worked it out. He knows what she's done. He knows now that he was never going to admit it. And something's changed about C now. She's a different person. Now, of course, this part of the film is cinematic and not supposed to be taken literally. In fact, in many ways, the whole thing is a metaphor for coercive control. We're not expected to take literally what she does as a way to deal with coercive control. But the strength not to be sucked back into the world of lies and control is meaningful. Her willingness to stand up to this bully has changed her. So before I wrap up this 
episode of Courts on Film, there's one more factor about this movie that I feel obliged to address, and that is the choice of Elizabeth Moss as the lead actor. Moss plays this type of role fabulously well. The woman beaten down, but with reserves of strength that ultimately win out. It's hard to imagine another performer could have fulfilled that role in any way as well as her. But there are a few questions about Moss's own involvement in Scientology, a group that is often described as a cult that uses coercive methods on many of its members. And she has received similar criticism after the success of The Handmaid's Tale, again a story about coercive control, this time essentially a cult state. So as a former member of a high control group myself, having interviewed a former member of Scientology and learning about the practices of Scientology through various very credible reporters, I have to say that I find the group at best very problematic. I would identify it as a cult, particularly those in the sort of more involved uh, part of it. So those involved in the Sea Org, for instance. However, this podcast isn't really the place for this discussion. I suppose I find I am able to separate the behaviour of a group that I have criticism for with an individual exposed at a very young age to a group through her mother and the performance playing a character. In any case, it's, it's my view that cult members are themselves victims of coercive control and therefore should not be held to the same level of accountability as the leaders of the organisation for the group's behaviour. Individuals who are members of cults often experience cognitive dissonance. This is the uncomfortable feeling of holding two opposing ideas of truth in one's head at the same time. Individuals manage this dissonance, sometimes by doubling down and defending what might seem to us as the indefensible. It's possible that this is happening with actors and performers and others who are members of these sorts of groups. To finish up, unfortunately, the evidence is that there are far too many relationships that follow the pattern of a coercive one. There are also hundreds of thousands, even millions of people trapped in coercive groups, cults that control and manipulate in order to further their own ends. Perhaps the biggest weapon against this type of behaviour is knowledge. Knowledge for people going into relationships. Knowledge about unacceptable behaviour and knowledge by the support systems, police and courts, to understand the playbook and intervene when required. So the 2020 version of The Invisible Man is an attempt, in my view, and in many ways I think a successful one, to bring this behaviour to light. Ironically, perhaps due to the theme of The Invisible Man, it makes something visible, something that needs to be understood more, and rendered as antisocial and unacceptable in a modern society. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Cult Hackers. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, rate, and if you can, leave a comment. You can also support the Cult Hackers podcast by becoming a patron for just $1.50. Thank you.
Tools Hackers is an Evil Sheep production. 